Welcome to Truth for Transformation with Timothy Brown. Timothy is the lead pastor of Arden First Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. Our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. We pray that today's message inspires you to live an extraordinary life in Jesus Christ. Check out our website for more inspiring resources, ArdenFBC.com. Now, here's today's message from Pastor Timothy Brown. Morning, church. We want to welcome all of you here. Yeah, we're so glad you're here today um, on this beautiful Sunday. Yes, if you have a worship guide, go ahead and get that out, get ready for the word. I will tell you, there is a typo there, it's let's change the world, we misspelled world, so I'm going to work on my editing skills. (laughs) So for those of you who are detailed, you're like, you misspelled world, we know. So we want to welcome everyone here, for those listening online, we're so glad you're with us. Uh, This time we're going to pray over the word and get our hearts ready. and get encouraged together, um, being together with your people. We thank you that we can hear your word being preached, and I pray that it would fall on teachable hearts. I pray that we would hear and we would respond in obedience and transform our lives. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Acts 22, so go ahead and turn there. As you turn there, we're going to do a little walk down church history. How many of you have ever heard of Polycarp? Raise your hand. All right, a few of you. Uh, Polycarp was the longest living person that knew one of the apostles. He was mentored by the apostle John himself. And uh, John kind of told him stories about his time with Jesus And Polycarp actually has a book, it's not in scripture, but he wrote a book to the church at Philippi and, you know, shared some of, some of his experiences and encouragement to, to live for Christ. But one thing about Polycarp is towards the end of his life, they began to hunt down Christians. He pastored the church in Smyrna. So for those of you familiar with the book of Revelation, John wrote one of the letters to the church at Smyrna, which Polycarp eventually was the pastor of. So he pastored that church and persecution broke out in Smyrna. And basically they brought Polycarp. By this time he was still a young man in his 80s. Everyone over 80 said thank you, amen. Um, And they brought him before the Colosseum. That's where they would release the lions and, and whatnot. And they said, Polycarp, we'll give you a chance, like a plea deal, if you will renounce Jesus and burn incense to Caesar, we will let you go. And Polycarp, I want to read to you what he said, his quote. He says, for 86 years, I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So they decided instead of letting the lions tear him apart, they they decided to let him die an agonizing death being caught on fire. So according to history, they they tied up Polycarp, his arms on the cross, this, this beam, and this, this is part, this part here, we're not sure historically if it's true or not, but it was kind of a legend that the fire would not kill him. That he had some kind of supernatural protection. Like I said, we don't know whether that part, it's kind of legend, church legend. But according to the story, the fire would not consume Polycarp. So his executioner was so upset, he commanded him to be stabbed to death with daggers. So they began to, 
kill him with daggers. And according to the story, his blood quenched the flame. The flame went out. And a lot of times when we talk about church history, sometimes we forget that the church was built on Jesus Christ, number one, but also many martyrs who gave their lives for this faith. And we get to worship in freedom. Amen. And we're not always promised that right. Things could change in our history where we see this happening. And it does happen in other countries, by the way, outside of America. There are still stories like this that emerge of people who give their lives for Christ. So what we're going to do a little preview for today. And again, welcome to those watching online. We're going to talk about the Apostle Paul and he is on trial and they're going to have a trial. And basically the question is, Paul, are you guilty? And what we're going to do is as we talk about Paul, we're going to turn the table on you and we're going to ask this question. If being a Christian becomes a crime, if it becomes a criminal act, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law for being a Christian? Who's ready to jump into God's word? Say amen. So let's we're going to finish chapter 22 and then go into chapter 23. So starting in verse 30 of chapter 22, it said the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down to set him before them. Chapter 23, verse one. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by him said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when the Pharisees perceived that one part were Sadducees, when Paul perceived one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out into the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now there arose a great dissension. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. May God bless his word. So today I want to present to you five observations from Paul's life. We're going to see Paul standing trial for his Christian faith. And as we talk about Paul, we're going to make direct application to you and ask this question. Could a jury convict you for being a Christian? So number one, the first observation, Paul was on trial for his faith in Jesus Christ. So look back in verse 30. It says the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why Paul was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds 
and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So here you have the commander Claudius Lysias, who is basically wondering why Paul is being so accused. Paul has said that he is a Roman and as a Roman, you have to have a fair trial. So Claudius Lysias is wanting to know the charges against Paul. So a little background. I think we have a picture of this. This is the Antonia Fortress. So the Antonia Fortress was built right next to the second temple. And this was kind of an outpost so that the Roman guards could look over at an elevated height and see what was going on in the temple courtyards. So that way, if there's ever a fight or something broke out among the Jews, they could send troops down to the temple to squelch any rebellion that was going on. So where this is taking place is at this Antonio Fortress. So the question brings up, why was Paul on trial? Was it because he was falsely accused by Asian Jews that said Paul brought a Gentile into the temple? Was it because they thought Paul was against the law of Moses? Or was there a greater issue? What is the why behind the what? And all of those are valid things that they accused Paul of. But the real reason why Paul was on trial is because he believed in a resurrected Lord Jesus. He was a Christian. And it brings the question to us, if Christianity becomes outlawed and you are to stand before a jury, would there be enough evidence to convict you as a Christian? Would your talk convict you as a Christian? Would your walk, how you live your life convict you? Would your witness convict you? Or would there not be enough evidence? See, whatever you value is what you live for. If you value things of this world system, you're going to live for things like popularity. You're going to live for things like pleasure. You want to maximize pain, minimize pleasure. You're going to live for happiness. And the mantra is God just wants me to be happy. I mean, you've ever heard that. I don't know where they find that in the Bible. Maybe Hezekiah 3.16. I don't, I don't know. God just wants me to be happy. Well, the Bible never says that God wants you to be holy. If you're happy, that's great, but that's not the pursuit. It's not the pursuit of happiness. It's the pursuit of holiness. On the other hand, if you live for Jesus, your life will show it. It'll show it by how you love others. It'll show by how you live your life differently. It'll show by how you treat others. Let there be enough evidence to convict you as a Christian by your walk, by your talk, and by your attitude. There should be enough evidence to show that you're different. Observation number two from Paul's life. Paul did his best to walk the talk with a clear conscience. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 23. It says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, he said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, Paul, in his letters and his talks, he spoke about his conscience or being aware of his conscience at least 23 different times. He mentions the word conscience. So it was, it was a major theme of Paul. So the question is, how could Paul make such a startling statement? I have lived before God with a clear conscience. It reminds me of President Abraham Lincoln. All of us studied about Abraham Lincoln growing up in school, and we know him as Honest Abe. But one thing you may not know is that Abraham Lincoln, whenever he was talking about his integrity, he said that when I lay down these reins of power at the end of my presidency... I may have no friends left, but I want to have at least one friend. I want to have the friend inside of me when I lay down these reins of power. What was Lincoln saying? 
He was saying that his conscience, his integrity, that was important to him. He realized that Lincoln was going to make mistakes in his presidency, as all humans do. But one thing he never wanted to compromise, that was his integrity. So how could Paul say, I have lived before God in all good conscience? Well, the main interpretation of this is he's standing before the Sanhedrin and he's basically saying, according to the Jewish law, I've done nothing that you could prosecute me as being a Jew. Like I have kept the law. But there's also a second application of that. I think it's referring directly to the law that he had kept the Old Testament law, not perfectly, but nothing that would legally make him a criminal worthy of execution. But secondly, he was different now. He was changed. Whenever Paul had met Jesus on the road to Damascus, all of a sudden his life was forever changed. He went from death to life. He went from sinner to saint. He went from hell bound to heaven bound. And here's the thing. The same is true in your life. You go from death to life. You go from butter, from caterpillar to butterfly. You go from darkness to light. That's what happens when you give your life to Christ. So we're going to turn the table on you now. How could you say, I'm living my life with a good conscience? I mean, that's kind of hard. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have things of my past that haunt me. You ever lay down to sleep at night and things of your past just come up and you're like, wow, you have a dream about high school, which was, I'm not going to tell me how many years ago, but things come back to your mind and you're like, how could, how could I live in a good conscience? Well, first of all, your conscience is the mirror in your inner person that reflects your internal values. So even people who aren't Christians have a conscience, knowing right from wrong. And over time, whenever you violate your conscience, basically what happens is it becomes dull. It becomes no longer as strong. Things that used to bother you no longer bother you as much. So here's what happens when you come to Christ. I have four Practical applications, and this is on your listening guide. Number one, when you give your life to Christ, you're given a brand new life. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they're what? A new creation. The old is gone and the new life has come. I'll never forget when I was working on my dissertation, something really shocking happened. My computer glitzed and I lost like chapters of my dissertation. And this is after the church had given me like a week off to study. All the work, like 50 pages, was gone. And I was just devastated. I'm like, I can't retrieve it. I don't know what to do. So I began to put on my geek cat, Google, how do you retrieve? And thankfully, Word has a retrieval process. You can go back to older versions of Word. And I recovered it and I didn't lose 40 hours worth of typing. Thank God. But when you come to Christ, the power goes out. You once were under the power of the world. And when the power of Christ comes on in your life, guess what? Your past, it's erased. And Satan may try to bring it back, but guess what? What God has forgiven, it's forgiven. Your past is no longer going to be held against you. Amen. Second application, when you're given a brand new life, as I mentioned, your past is erased. Look at Colossians 1, 22 and 23. I love this. It says you once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. And now he has reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death to present you. Now, this is after you become a Christian. When your past is erased, here's how God views you. Holy, blameless and above reproach. And you think about in a court of law, isn't it cool 
that when Satan brings a reproach, the father says you're above reproach because Christ has taken away your sin. You're considered not guilty. And Colossians 2.14, the context he's talking about, the Old Testament laws that we've broken. We've broken the Old Testament laws. It says that Christ canceled the record of the charges against us. And he took it away by nailing it to what? The cross. So every past deed you've done, every mistake that you've made, if you've asked Christ to come into your life and to forgive you, the Bible says you have a clean record. So you, like Paul, can say, I have a clear conscience. My, my heart is clean. No matter what Satan brings up, it, it's gone. It's in the past. Third application, when you're given a brand new life, not only is your past forgiven, your present is filled with hope. Look at Romans 5.13. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all what? Joy and peace in believing. That you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is it that so many Christians, once we're baptized, we come out on the other side as though we've been baptized in lemon juice? Sour saints, critical. And it's like... According to scriptures, knowing that my past is forgiven, knowing that my present has hope, knowing that my future is secure. Listen, life is not always going to be easy. Sometimes there will be persecution. Sometimes there will bad things will happen to you. But guess what? The Bible says you can walk in hope because of Jesus Christ, what he's done. And fourth application, because your present is filled with hope. Your future is flooded with redemptive potential. One of my favorite scriptures is Ephesians 3.20. You guys will hear me quote this a lot. But it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to power, his power that's at work within us. So think about your brightest ideas, your loftiest dreams, the greatest imaginations you may have. Christ says that he can do beyond that in him. So... One of my one of my hearts for you as your pastor is that I want you to reach your full redemptive potential. What I mean by redemptive potential is that when Christ made you new, the Bible says that you're created in Christ Jesus for for good works, which God's prepared in advance. You're not saved by good works, but once you're saved, he's got a whole life full of amazing good works. And my goal is to encourage you to equip you and to empower you. For these good works so that when you reach the end of your life, you can look back and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have poured out my life. One of my pastor friends, his name's Pastor Sergio. Many of you know him, Asheville City Church. He said this to me about 10 years ago. Never forget. He said, Timothy, I want my life to be such when I get to my last day on earth. I have poured out everything I have. I have nothing left to pour out. And then God takes me home. I think that's a, that's a good mission, isn't it? To pour out your life as an offering to God. So I have an announcement to make, church. I'm not the same person I used to be. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was walking in darkness, but now I'm walking in glorious light. I once was living half dead, but now I'm living more alive than I've ever lived before. I'm not the same. He's made me new. Praise be to his name. Amen. Observation number three. Paul was mistreated by a spiritual leader. Look what happens in verse two. And the high priest Ananias commanded that those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So what happens next is very interesting. The 
the high priest of the Sanhedrin, Ananias. Now, this is not the same Annas of the New Testament. This is Ananias, the high priest. He was a very wicked high priest. Josephus said that he was so wicked historically that he would still tithe, tithe money from the common priest to make himself more rich. I mean, this guy was vicious. He was wicked and he was aligned with Rome. So the common Jewish people did not like Ananias because he was pro-Rome. And he wanted to use his religious authority to make himself more wealthy and more powerful. Does that sound like anyone you've ever heard about in, in, in the world today? So Paul was basically standing there sharing his testimony. And Ananias commands someone else to smack him. Now, the original Greek, it has this connotation to strike someone with force. Now, this was used of Jesus being struck. This same word was used of Paul being beaten up by a mob. So this was not your common Will Smith smack in the face. This was like a blow that hit Paul so hard. I mean, he was just like, oh my goodness, I can't imagine that. Now, could you imagine being in a courtroom and the judge like, all right, go and punch that person in the face. I mean, we would think like this would be all over the news if a judge ever did that. So Ananias, why did he do this? Well, most likely he did this because Paul saying I've lived in clear conscience before God to this day is basically saying not guilty charge to the judge. The leader of the Sanhedrin would be like the Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court of America, similar to the Supreme Court. They were the top legal authority and the high priest was the the leader of the Sanhedrin. And so Paul's basically saying, I am not guilty of the charges. So he smacks him in the face. So it brings the application to us. How many of you in here have been hurt by someone you looked up to? Maybe by someone in your family, maybe a parent, maybe a church, maybe a pastor. Now, I want to separate this application from the more major ones. Now, when there's criminal activity, it needs to be reported to the authorities, not tolerated, That's not what I'm talking about. But if you've ever been let down, if someone ever offered promises and did not keep them, if someone, you know, promised to be there for you, they weren't. Maybe it was a a parent figure. Maybe it was a pastor. And as a pastor, I hear the number one people coming from other churches. This church let me down. So it's it's very um, common for us to be hurt by a spiritual leader. So. It begs the question, how do you respond when you've been hurt? And I'm not talking about the criminal hurts. I'm talking about just the everyday misunderstandings. I have four applications. I want you to write this down on your listening guide. Four actions of someone that's been hurt by someone you look up to. The first one is to check your focus. If someone has let you down and your focus is on that person instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what happens? Every time you drive by that person's house, that person's church, you're haunted and flooded with those emotions. That person let me down. So I want to encourage you, your focus should never be on a spiritual leader or authority. Your focus should always be on who? On Jesus Christ. And as long as you're focused on the person who hurt you, offended you, wasn't there for you, that's going to follow you all of your life. The second one is ask for help. I'm surprised that so many people that come to me saying I was hurt by this person When I ask, have you ever asked for help? Have you ever seen a counselor? Have you ever seen a a Christian therapist? The answer often is no, I've never talked to anyone about it. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with having Jesus and a therapist, okay? There's nothing wrong when you've been hurt 
to talk it out because we never want to minimize hurt. Hurt is hurt, regardless of how big or how small it is. Number three, don't drink the poison of unforgiveness. Now, we have a quote here on the screen. You guys may have heard this. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. You ever had that someone offended you and you carried on for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Someone in your high school, you look back many years later and you're still hurt. It's like you drinking poison and you're wanting the other person to die. The only one that's really hurting is who? Yourself. And fourth application is remember the cross. If you look at the cross, when Jesus was dying on the cross, now they had done criminal offenses against Jesus. Not mild, I was offended, the person didn't reach out to me or the person didn't keep a promise. They were killing the Son of God who did nothing wrong. That was a criminal offense. And in the criminal offense, Jesus said, Father, what? Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What if you had the same mindset, the person that hurts you, now, some may have known what they were doing, but they didn't fully know. If they fully knew that this would cause such lasting damage, would they have done it to you? Now, some people that are criminal in mind, the answer may be yes. But for a lot of people, sometimes they didn't realize the effect it would have on you. Sometimes they didn't know that it would hurt you. So I want to do something a little different. If you've ever been hurt by somebody, maybe a parent, maybe the parent's in heaven now. Maybe it's a person that you'll never see again. Maybe it's a person, as I mentioned, that's passed on. Maybe it's someone that will never say they're sorry. If I could help promote healing right now, I just want to apologize on behalf of anyone that's hurt you. Uh, a parent, a spiritual leader, a pastor, a church. I just want to say I'm sorry for the hurt that you received. And I want you to know that Jesus not only understands your hurt, he bears your hurt, he bore it on the cross. And I also want to represent Jesus today that Jesus said that if you are forgiven, you should forgive. Even the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That daily prayer, it's, it's the idea that the forgiven forgive. If you have been forgiven by Jesus, you should forgive through Jesus. So I just want to encourage you, all of us have been hurt in some ways. And I'm not minimizing that one bit. I'm actually saying we've got to deal with the hurt. But what we've got to do is realize if Jesus has forgiven us, we have to take steps of forgiveness. Now, there's a difference between trusting someone and forgiving someone. You can forgive someone and not trust them again, right? Trust has to be earned. But forgiveness, even if they never say, I'm sorry, we are to forgive those who hurt us. So let there be no doubt in your talk in your walk, and in your attitude that you are indeed a follower of Jesus. Number four, observation number four. What do we see from Paul's life? Now, this one is hard for me. I didn't want to make this a point, but it was in the description. I could not gloss over, over it. Paul didn't respond well in this weak moment in his life. Now, it's very rare when you'll say Paul did something wrong, but realize Paul was not Jesus, right? Jesus is the only one that never made a mistake. In this case, Paul made a mistake. What was his mistake? He called the high priest, what did he call him? A whitewashed wall. And you're like, I have no idea what a whitewashed wall is. Well, this goes back to the book of Ezekiel, where the prophet Ezekiel talks about these religious leaders that instead of cleaning up their lives and cleaning up their acts, they paint over 
a coat of thin white plaster. And it, it, it looks pretty, right? How many of you have ever whitewashed something? It looks pretty, but unless you clean up before you paint, there's still dirt underneath the paint. So when Paul called the high priest a whitewashed wall, he did something that later on when he was rebuked about it, he's like, I didn't realize this was the high priest because the Old Testament scripture says don't speak evil of one of your rulers, right? So Paul didn't know that this was Ananias. He realized that he had made a mistake. And what's interesting, Paul, I don't believe he knew it at the time, but he prophesies here. He says, God will strike you. You whitewash wall. Did you know that in A.D. 66, 66 A.D., something happened. Ananias got out of favor with the people, which he already was. And they began to hunt him down in his final days. And one of his own Jewish people assassinated him, the high priest. So Paul didn't realize when he said it at the time, but he said, God will strike you down. That was true. But where Paul messed up is he operated in the flesh at this moment. Have you ever said something you regretted before when you were upset? I mean, I could put myself in Paul's shoes. Someone just hits you in the face. You've been worn down. You've been beaten. You've been stoned. You've been mocked. You've been kicked out of city to city. Paul is like, I mean, he's tired. He's human. And instead of operating in the spirit at this moment, he's speaking out in the flesh. And I want to contrast it to how Jesus responded. The same thing happened to Jesus. And I think we have that scripture, or at least it's in your listening God, John 18, 22 and 23. When Jesus was smacked, he said uh, in verse 22, when he had said these things, the officer stood by, struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Sounds just like Paul. And notice what Jesus said. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? So notice that Jesus did not... Go on the attack. Like he responded with a question. Paul, on the other hand, name calls this person. So can I give a little confession? You guys want to hear a confession? I hear it's good for the soul. Your pastor doesn't always respond as he should. This week, and I had to ask permission from my wife to tell this story. So for those of you who are like, oh no, he's going to. We had a stressful week. Um, all five kids are home from summer. How many of you are there? The kids are out. And it's fun the first few weeks, but after a few weeks of it, you're like, when's school going to start back, right? It's like, man. So Lori had been with the kids all day, and I had come home, and I was like, you know, I'm going to do my fatherly duty. I'm going to take, take the kids out. But I found out that Gabriel and Lincoln were at each other, and you know, how boys you know, sometimes go at each other. So my idea was like, all right, you keep Grace and you keep Lincoln. I'll take the other three, divide and conquer. you know. And Lori kind of hesitated because she was stressed. It was a hard day. And in that moment, without even giving her a chance to process my request, I said, you just don't care about the kids, do you? <laughs> I said it. And everyone's like, the ladies are mad at me right now, Lori. So I said it because I, I was, we both were stressed. We both were frustrated. We're like, man, can't these kids just get along? And in that moment, the Holy Spirit convicted me. Timothy, you blew it. You blew it big time. And after I said it, I had to think about it. She's been with the kids all day. How stupid was me to say you don't care. She's been watching them all day. I should have took all five kids without asking anything. And so I had to, whenever you mess up, you 
fess up. So in the moment, I didn't wait like to the next day or the next week. I said, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And that's the thing. The pastor Skip Isaac said this. I thought it was really good. He said, the best thing is not to sin. But the second best thing is when you do sin, you confess it right away. Okay. I want you guys to get that. The best thing is not to sin. But when you do sin, you confess it right away. So you look at Paul, we can learn from his model. When he messed up, he said, guys, I didn't realize this. He, he, he confessed it on the spot. And so I want to encourage you, there will be times where you mess up. And ladies, don't be angry. I, I got it right with Lori. We're good, right? See, we're good, okay? First service, the women were like about to come after me. I said, listen, I, I'm sharing this because I got it right, okay? So here's the thing. This is something I borrowed from AA. It's the word halt. How many of you have ever heard this acrostic before? It's whenever you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you're to slow down. Because when your emotions are high, your intelligence is low. So listen, I, I wasn't, I wasn't hungry because I eat as often, I'm trying to lose weight, so I wasn't hungry. I wasn't necessarily angry. I was more frustrated. I wasn't lonely because I'm surrounded by people all the time. But I was tired, okay? Now, when you start to bundle these, when you're hangry, how many of you have been hungry and angry at the same time? All right? You just got to be extra careful, okay? So whenever you're one of these four, here's the thing. Even as a Christian, you have the flesh, the sarks, the Bible, S-A-R-X, and you have the spirit. And the Bible says you can walk according to the flesh or you can walk according to the spirit. At that moment... Was I in the flesh or in the spirit? I was in the flesh. So I had to halt after I messed up and say, back up the bus, I'm sorry. So here's the thing, what we can learn from Paul, is that whenever you're weary, you've got to take time to take a breath. Before you move forward with the decision, you've got to pause, take a deep breath, and just pray through, God, help me. Sometimes I have to get alone in my room. Sometimes the bathroom is where no one disturbs. And just say, God, fill me again. I am weary. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good husband. Help me, Father. You know, just pause and help, and God will help you. It's been said that Alexander the Great, after he conquered Persia, he broke down and wept because his troops were too tired to go to India. Even Alexander the Great. Hugo Grotius the father of modern international law, listen to what he wrote. This is the guy that modern international law. He said, I've accomplished nothing worthwhile in my life. Yeah, right. John Quincy Adams, president, he wrote in his diary, my life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations and in ceaseless rejected prayers that something would be the result of my existence beneficial to my species. <laughs> Cecil Rhodes um, He's the one who opened up Africa and he set up an empire. Here's, here, here were Cecil's dying words. So little done, so much to do. See, whenever you're tired, whenever you're stressed, even Alexander the Great, even the greatest of, of, of conquering people that are, you see, seem to have so much confidence, they can say things that are unwise. The, the, the thought is, when you're in the midst of a trying situation, slow down, take a deep breath, and recalibrate. All right, number five, fifth observation. What can we learn from Paul? Paul uses intellectual savvy to turn the table on his enemies. So in verses six through ten, Paul, even though he didn't recognize Ananias, which by the way, there's a few reasons why. 
Number one, Paul has not been in the high circles of Jerusalem for over 20 years. So he probably did not recognize who the high priest was. Because this was an informal meeting, he probably didn't have his high priest robes. Number two, another possibility that Paul didn't recognize Ananias is many scholars believe he suffered from bad eyesight. So everyone that struggles with your eyesight, Paul can relate. He told the church in Galatia, he says, you see what large letters I've written with my hand. So he, part of the thing he wrote, and it's really big letters because he couldn't see very well. He also told the church at Galatians, he's like, you were with me in my sickness and in my infirmity. And if you would have, you would have taken your own eyes out of your head and given them to me. So most scholars believe that he suffered from eyesight, maybe because he was stoned so many times with rocks pelting him. It could have affected his vision. We're not sure. But one thing he did notice is as he looked at the Sanhedrin, Many scholars believe that Paul himself, because he was a Pharisee, because he studied under Gamaliel, most likely he was part of the Sanhedrin. We're not sure, but there's a high probability. So he knew that this group was divided into scribes and other religious leaders, but basically they fell into two groups. You had the Pharisees and then you had the Sadducees. So the Pharisees were the conservative group. They believed in all of the Old Testament. They, they believed in angels and demons. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were considered the liberals of their day. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the rest. They were the rationalists. So they rejected angels and demons and spirits. They rejected the resurrection of the dead. So in the New Testament, we see Pharisees, some of them getting saved. But to my knowledge, I don't know of any Sadducee who ever got saved in the New Testament, at least any report. And the reason why, they rejected resurrection. So they didn't believe in a resurrected Jesus because they rejected resurrection. So Paul, you ever heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? So Paul, they're all against Paul. So what does he do? He yells out, I am a Pharisee. I am the son of a Pharisee. I'm, I believe in the resurrection. He, he's like, he's starting to get the group. So what happens when he said, I'm a Pharisee? Who does he get on his team? All the Pharisees. And from my understanding, the majority of the Sanhedrin was composed of Pharisees. Now, you did have some Sadducees, but the majority probably was in the Pharisee group. So all of a sudden, he turns the table and he gets these groups to war against him. And part of the reason why is when Paul realized he would not have a fair trial with Sanhedrin. They, they wanted him out. They wanted him dead. He's like, I'm not going to get a fair trial. God's not through with me yet. So basically, he turned the tables and they started arguing against each other. And Paul got removed from the situation. Because Paul's goal was to take the gospel from Jerusalem to where? To Rome. And he wasn't there yet. God still had work for him to do. So what I want to encourage you, just by way of application as we conclude, is how to be a street smart saint. How many of you have ever heard of someone with street smarts? That's usually someone that knows how to get around. They know how not to get conned by someone. You know, they, they know basically this person's not trustworthy. You know, the Bible tells us that we're to be wise like serpents and gentle as what? As doves. So I want to give you three applications from Paul. The first one is know thy audience. And yes, I'm speaking King James because we don't, it'll stick in your mind a little longer. Know thy audience. Paul knew his audience. Most people in talking to the Sanhedrin would refer to them as elders and fathers. Paul talks to them as brothers, right? 
He knew the audience. So why did he call them brothers? Why didn't he call them fathers? Because Paul was one of them. He was a Pharisee. He knew that he knew many of them. The other one is to connect with the audience. It's interesting how Paul, in wanting to change their minds, he began to impact their hearts. When he said, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a son of a Pharisee, what did Paul do? He captured the heart of the Pharisees. A lot of times when you want to change someone's mind, you have to start with their heart. You have to have that personal connection. And the third aspect is to reframe thy situation so it's seen from a different perspective. You notice in the scripture passage that first they want Paul dead, but look at the end of the scripture, verse 9. It says, and these are the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees' party rose and protested, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So a street smart saint knows himself or herself, knows his audience. And the, the goal is not to turn things around for your good. The goal is how can I work in this situation for the advancement of the gospel? Paul knew he had more work to do. And it's brilliant how he was getting ready to basically be killed. Guilty as charged, but yet he turned it around and God gave him more time, more, more years of ministry, even though he was arrested. So let's throw today's big idea on the screen. How could we summarize this? If you were on trial, if being a Christian was a crime, this is the conclusion. Let there be no doubt in your talk, in your walk, and in your attitude that you're a follower of Jesus. So here's three practical things to take home. Three take-home truths. How do we do that? You know, we've studied a lot about Paul. The first one is walk the talk. There should be no doubt that the way you carry yourself, the way you love others, the way you treat others, the way you talk, even your attitude, that you're a Christian. Let there be no more sour saints in the church. Amen. Let us have that hope that Jesus gives us. Second application is practice forgiveness. As I did that practice on stage saying that, you know, let me represent the person that hurt you because they may never ask for forgiveness I want you to know that we're not minimizing the hurt. Some of you have major hurts, major wounds. We're encouraging you to get help. We're encouraging you to seek counseling, a Christian counselor. Don't minimize it, because if you minimize it, it will come back and hurt you later. God wants you to practice forgiveness. And you're like, well, Timothy, you don't understand what someone did. I don't, but Jesus does. And I'm not the one who said, Father, forgive them. So the Lord's Prayer says to forgive us for our debts as we forgive our debtors. If you have been forgiven by Jesus, now you can forgive through Jesus. To forgive and forgive. And finally, third application. Learn how to navigate conflict in a healthy manner. So husbands, don't do what I did to my wife, okay? And ladies, don't come after me. I confess, so you can't use it against me, okay? So listen, you're going to mess up. You're going, to, you're going to say things you regret. All of us do. But remember, when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, when you're stressed, don't make any quick actions, okay? Take time to pause. Take time to pray. Take time to allow God to renew your spirit. And that way, you're navigating conflict in healthy ways versus things that will get you into trouble. And all the gentlemen said, amen. Let us pray. Father, your word is true. Your word is powerful. 
And God, I'm wondering who here is struggling with unforgiveness. Who here has a a misunderstanding with another brother or sister? Maybe their parents that have went on, that have passed on, and many that are with you that they can't say, I'm sorry. They can't confront them with this issue. And God, you're calling them right now to say, because Jesus has forgiven me, I'm going to offer forgiveness to the person that's hurt me. So right now where you're sitting, those listening online, if you've been hurt by somebody in your life that you've looked up to, I'm not asking you to trust that person again, but I'm asking you to to say the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them. So right now, if you've been hurt, just say, Jesus, I forgive that person that's hurt me. I don't minimize it. I don't push it under the rug, but I, I choose to take the first step towards the road to forgiveness. If you sitting here with as we're continuing to pray if there's not enough evidence to convict you you're not saved by works we're going to get that out out of the way but if you've not lived the life in such a way that people see your light see jesus shining through you just tell god you already know say god i've not been a good witness i've not been a good witness in my talk in my walk in my attitude please forgive me i repent of this as the believers continue to pray there may be one here one listening online That you've never asked God to forgive you. You don't know what it's like to forgive others because you've never been forgiven. Right where you're at, if you're willing to receive the good news that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And he rose the third day. And you're willing to turn from your sin and turn to him. Say this prayer. No magical words. It's just your prayer of faith. Say, dear Jesus, I do believe the good news that you died for me and you rose again. And Jesus, I want to ask that you would come into my life. I want you to be my Lord and I want you to be my Savior. Jesus, forgive me for all my sins. I choose to follow you from this day forward. Thank you, Father. And all God's children said, Amen.